वेलकम टू सन टॉक द सन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द आइडियाज इन प्रिंट विल थिंक अबाउट द रिटन वर्ल्ड इन इट्स वेरियस फॉर्म्स हाउ डिड द बुक एज एन ऑब्जेक्ट कम टू बी वॉट मेक्स इट टू प्रिंट वॉट मेक्स अप अ मैनोस्क्रिप्ट did the profession of the author come after the book do textual artifacts and media in general influence civilizations and cultures how is the context of a text extracted is the original text not as important as say the original painting who is allowed to reproduce texts how did reading become a silent activity and what is the long term future of the lonely reader the author the spoken word and the document we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor shopan chakrabarti he is tagore distinguished chair in humanities at presidency university in calcutta his interests are european renaissance literature 19th century bengal and book history Dr. Yael Rice. She is an art historian who specializes in manuscripts from South Asia and the broader Islamic world. She is assistant professor at Amherst College. And Anupam Sah. He is an art conservator, restorer and strategist. He is the head of art conservation, research and training at CSMVS Museum in Mumbai. uh so shopan why don't we set the ball rolling with you um maybe going to this specific type of document which is a book and uh, obviously we kind of take it as common place today but you know as is always the case these journeys have their twists and turns uh what surprises you about this journey to where we are today what are the milestones what are the breaks what are the jumps um how how have we landed where we are if you think of book as an object as a little bit of a physical slash metaphysical object what is it what are the turns thank you when we think of the book today we usually not always but usually we think of the codex that is uh, the stitched segments inside a box as a frame not a box but the covers but that was not what the book was uh, earlier we had the manuscript book but before that we had scrolls we had uh, all kind of writing systems and the materials on which things were written so when you say writing systems you mean tablets and parchments and those were the materials on which so what do you mean written. by system by system for example now we use the alphabetic system which is a kind of legacy of the greeks mm-hmm. but even today chinese uh, writing does not follow the alphabetic system just you know uh 22 to 24 letters will give you the entire sound system sure. of a language that is not how many of the writing systems of the world uh evolved writing itself was uh, a revolutionary thing its journey to the book of course was another story altogether mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But since we are talking about ideas in print, we like to imagine that print was uh, a revolutionary technology. But uh, Gutenberg's invention could become revolutionary because of something else. That is the availability of cheap paper. Mm-hmm. Paper was invented in China in the third uh, century of the Common Era. But um, cheap paper was not available. Usually, you know, mulberry was the ingredient. Many other things have been used, esparto grass, for example. So what, what made paper cheap? The use of wood pulp. Right. And that is why it was made, it was possible. Um, for example, if you print on, let us say, um, on palm leaf or parchment, vellum, then you'll have to either uh, fell thousands of palm trees or kill thousands of sheep in order to have a single run of one edition of the Bible. <laughs> now, right. that, is, that is not feasible. Just think of the market. So the, so the initial bookshop on must have been crazily rare objects. Yes, they were. Just, in, just given how much needed to go yes. into making one. That's why they were worshipped when Ezra took, to, took these scrolls to, to Jerusalem. They were worshipped. Right. Like, you know, the, like the tabernacle, you know. And these became the religions of the book. Right. And uh, even today in our country, you have the Sikhs uh, worshipping the Guru Granth. And um, it was not always like that. For example, in, in India, uh, the Vedas were orally transmitted. Most historians, I'm not a historian, but most historians seem to believe that urban culture and uh, very complex urban uh, polity would not have been possible with, without some system of writing. But before the edicts, uh, we don't get across, we don't come upon any kind of writing system. We don't know whether there was a writing system in Mahinjadaru or not. We what about the written word itself? When it first came to be and wherever it was, was it, mm. was it looked down upon? Was it somehow inferior to the spoken word? In Greece, yes. In the Socratic uh, dialogue, Phaedrus, where Socrates says, well, here I'm talking to a living soul. Mm. I don't talk to an absent reader. Mm. The Greeks, it was a writing culture, right? But uh, still there was a suspicion. And the same suspicion was there, which uh, I would like to call borrowing from uh, D.F. Mackenzie, the stigma of print. Because if, you know, Biblia Poperum uh, were printed xylographically, that means from woodblocks as in China. But that was one uh, copy for the congregation. If everybody had uh, access to the holy book, everybody started interpreting the book, then there would always be, and then, yes, please. So, Yael, is there uh, there a similar, what's this interplay or position Mm. of the written word? I mean, for example, you've done a lot of work on Mm. what's come out as albums or otherwise from royal Mm. courts in the Islamic world. Hmm. Did the written word have some kind of a privileged higher up position or how was it? What's been the power play? What's been the journey there? Hmm. It's interesting. In the history of Islam, of course, the divine text of the Quran, right? Um, The revelations that the Prophet Muhammad receives over a period of a number of decades from the Archangel Jibreel are orally delivered. Exactly. So there's no original writer 
I mean, well, it depends on who you're asking mm-hmm. of that question, right? So um, there are traditions that claim that Ali, right, the son-in-law and nephew of the Prophet Muhammad, was the first to actually put down the text of the Quran um, onto a support. But that's just transcribing it. It's He's not the author. Oh, certainly he's not. He's not the creator. Absolutely of, not. Right. Um, so this is a hotly debated subject in terms of what are the earliest Quran books, mm-hmm. when do they date from. Mm-hmm. Um, the consensus today is that during uh, the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad and in the decades that followed, it remained a largely oral text. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, And it was fundamentally important as such because that was, in fact, the, uh, the format, the state in which it was delivered – these being revelations, the actual word of God. That's how they were meant to be. Mm. Which years are these? Uh, this is, you know, 632 sure. AD and after. Right. Um, so the earliest supports, written surface surfaces that we have that bear Quranic text are uh, papyrus, parchment, camel bone. Okay. Um, and then we also have epigraphs. Um, I think the, the, the thing I want to push you well. on a little bit is mm. why the drive or the need, culturally or otherwise, yeah. to go from the oral to the written. Of course, there are technologies that existed or did not exist and so on, but mm-hmm. what were the other forces at work? So the theories um, that have been put forth about that, of course, we don't know exactly. Um, one is that uh, it was mainly the family and followers um of the Prophet Muhammad, so this kind of nascent group of Muslims uh, who possessed, right, who had memorized, who are hafizes, right, of this um, of this text. And that's essentially how it was protected and then transmitted. Um, the One theory is that in the decade um, and decades that followed the death of the Prophet Muhammad, there was some concern about uh, the faithfulness by which this text would be transmitted were it to remain in a strictly So there was oral worry state. about errors creeping in. Right. And not just uh, in terms of consonantal errors, but also errors in terms of pronunciation of short and long vowels. Right. Uh, so that's one theory. And then there was also the very real fact that these individuals who had known the Prophet Muhammad during his lifetime were dying, right? Um, And so in the generation or two after, uh, the only individuals who would actually have memorized the Quran would have uh, learned it, would have memorized it from um, those who had been alive during the lifetime of the Prophet. So the impulse was archival, I mean, to to, to store it in the original kind of form. But, you know, I think, Shopanda, you've already spoken about like the the Vedas and Puranas and things of that sort that had seemingly come down over several centuries. Was it was it largely oral or only oral? I mean, were there yes, was there like one strand which somehow kept some kind of an authoritative text going so that there was something to refer to? That's an argument, yes, but uh, there have been debates on this. Um, as I was saying, some historians believe that there couldn't have been such a complex urban culture without a writing system. But we, the Vedas were orally transmitted. They were not written down. Right. They were written down much, much, much later. When when about were they first written down? I wouldn't be able to tell you, but sure. but before the coming of uh, you know uh, the, the Sanskrit language, the Tamil Brahmi mm-hmm. was much earlier than Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. Sanskrit came much later. I mean, they, were, were, was there a writing system? 
I was, I'm not very sure. Sure. And uh, we hear of the uh, the the Shala, the Bharati Bhandar, attached to temples, right? With manuscripts, they still are there. You, yeah. Did they start uh, collecting them? So Anupam, you you now you obviously touched and felt these things and maybe restored a few of these, right? So where do your oldest things come from? What is your guess or estimate or knowledge if, if it's gone all the way of where is that original impulse to actually record things come from obviously oral records are records as well but there are all sorts of worries that you have now maybe one didn't end up attaching the kind of importance that we do to the written word today in those days so maybe it was kind of okay where are you on this I mean, how, how do documents end up becoming documents what is it for you well the uh, if you see the Mm. the putting down of thoughts onto a support, so to say, it's a word that you mentioned, Yael, too. We see that the way of writing down something has been governed a lot by geography, has been governed a lot by the agrarian systems, has been governed also by the way technology developed in these regions. And because in order to be able to put these things down in writing, you needed the support, which would essentially be from the materials that were available at hand, and which over time, you learned how to process onto a support. And then you needed the instrument too. So Anupam, when you say support, you mean like a parchment or vellum? Yes, or a support thing, could whatever, be, anything. Uh, you mentioned you parchment, on. you mm -hmm. could have... Um, uh, the bark of trees, like you have the agaru bark in the Assam region of India. Sure. Or you have the palm leaves, which could be the, uh, you know, the, the, the churunas in um, in Kerala, you have the palm leaves all over the place. But And Sri Lanka, you have the, you know, the broader palm leaf. But Anupam, before you write, before you write, you need to have a writing system, right? You don't just start writing from the yeah. word get-go. Now, is there a way of going to the earliest see, days? If you go, if you see... Um, Again, it again stems from the uh, determination of the support, the, the type of support that also determined the writing system. Oh, For example, true. if you mm -hmm. went to the Sumerian, the clay tablets, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you mean the cuneiform? We're talking about the cuneiform writing. Because you used a wooden wedge, mm -hmm. it essentially just formed that shape. So that those so angular It is possible that those angular, the writing style also has mm -hmm. a lot to do with your tool and your support. Right. Similarly, the palm leaf manuscripts, on a palm leaf, you cannot write in straight lines because it tears the palm leaf. The structure of the palm leaf, the fibers of the palm leaves are arranged. Mm -hmm. um, Axially. You know, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, so you had to write round. in rounded forms. Mm. The style is always moved. So all our, uh, the Sri Lankan uh, script, uh, Bengal, our um, Odisha, all of these rounded writings. So they're curvaceous. Determined by the support. Mm. It's not that we developed that as our aesthetic sensibility. It was as it was, you had to do it because that was the way it went about. Is that a hypothesis, Anupam, or you? It's something you... I was just thinking as we were talking. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think it uh, is. Is is there a is there a, some there a... It's not just thought. It is about years of seeing these things, and mm -hmm. there's a pattern to these things. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the fact is that you can't do cuneiform on palm leaves. Yeah, and those it's just you realize that you can't on... do it simply. Just like you can't, it's not so easy to 
paint on palm leaves, not so easy unless you process the surface differently, which they did in many parts of the subcontinent. Otherwise, they incised the writing in it mm -hmm. you know, and filled it up with carbon black or leaves that were rubbed into it. Does this make sense to you, Yael? Now, obviously, I'm sure you haven't thought of this question in this specific kind of way, but why are scripts the way they are? I mean, they they look I, different. I think it's a. I, I think it helps to explain part of the equation. I don't know if I would be quite as materially or technologically deterministic because I think also um, as humans, we also make decisions much of the time to kind of work against the limitations of the materials we work with. But I think that's certainly an important component. Um, it did make me think as you were talking about uh, the kinds of materials that survive from um, Sumer, for example. I'm thinking also about Bronze Age writing systems, mm -hmm. which are the earliest that we have, the Indus Valley Civilization writing system, which famously has never been um, translated, uh, et cetera. And what survives in terms of the writing system from the Indus Valley Civilization are uh, carvings, inscriptions in hard stones and semi-precious stone. But it made me think about what, of course, doesn't survive. We're talking about what is extant. Right. And mm -hmm. so this question of where Maybe and there how, was ephemeral support at that point in time when they all they, died. There must have been. Must have been. Right? There just must have been. So what you, we have left is what, as conservators know, are able to, you know, withstand, mm, right? Some resilience. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you get only fragments, Anupam, or you get full, full things? When the earliest forms were there, they are fragments, obviously, whether they're from Central Asia or other places. Um, but, and then from the 9th century onwards, especially with the Islamic world, I think a lot of writings have come through. And the quality of the papers, it's interesting how the quality of paper and the treatment of the surface of the paper has been so different across civilizations, region to region. It's, it's really beautiful. What was the journey of print in the Islamic world itself, Yael? And mm. was it, now of course we'll go and think about that in the, mm -hmm. in the Greek world or the Roman world or the English world more generally. Mm -hmm. But what, what was the journey like in the Islamic world? Did it get adopted mm. uh, like fish mm -hmm. takes to water or whatever? What, what was it like? So print isn't really taken up in any great volume in terms of the reproduction of books in the Islamic world. And when you say print, you mean like print technology, like movable print type technology. and press, press. It's actually uh, lithography um, that is used for the earliest uh, books that are reproduced in the Islamic world that are using Arabic, Urdu, Persian scripts. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'm not actually talking about much earlier books that are, uh, you know, copies of the Quran, for example, that are um, reproduced using movable type in Europe, you know, centuries prior. Um, there's also the Mutafarika Press that was active for a very limited period of time, I believe in the 18th century. Where in, was that? That was in Istanbul. Okay, right. so that was a sort of short-lived experimental project. But this was like a movable type uh, kind of press? Yes, yes. Mm. So I would say that is an exception. Um, so what we're really talking about is the wholesale, again, larger volume project to reproduce not only copies of the Quran, but dictionaries, poetic texts, histories. Which is the interesting question, right? What makes uh, it to a book? Like, I, And this is yeah. this is a content question. Like what ends up getting transcribed? And mm. just given how 
difficult it seems to have been in the early days to even get to making something that resembled a book now obviously mm. i don't know whether trivial things made made their way there so mm-hmm. what were the what was the original content like were there certain genres that were preferred what happened absolutely um so as i was just saying i mean they were you have to have a market there has to be an audience because print is an expensive venture Um, mm-hmm. It was in the 16th century, 17th century. It's much less expensive today. Um, but you needed to know that you were going to get some return on your investment, right? So it was the standard market forces that were... So you had Quran texts, Quranic texts, for example, that were um, reproduced again using lithographic processes. Um, but poetic texts uh, like Persian texts by Jami, Nizami, um, Saadi... Uh, dictionaries, okay, um, books that would have been used by students, civil servants, right, uh, in schools, books that were used in madrasas. Uh, so, so who were the customers? Was it the state? Was it um, were people actually buying and selling these things, or it was an institutional kind of market with the court being in the middle of most of this? They, as I understand it, so we we have a, a kind of push in the 19th century at major urban centers, for example, across India, um, in Calcutta, in Lucknow, in Bombay, um, in Madras, where um, we are seeing seeing these texts um, in printed format being reproduced, um, are being reproduced for a mostly kind of urban, urbane clientele. Uh, they end up, I mean, this is a really fascinating uh, um, phenomenon that the earliest copies of the Shahname, right, the history, actually the, the, the real and fantastical history of the kings of Iran, uh, which is today hailed as a kind of national epic of Iran, were produced in Bombay. Produced as in just printed? Sorry, in lithographic format with illustrations produced in Bombay in the 1840s, and it's copies of these, uh, again, lithographically reproduced and illustrated texts that travel to Iran and become the models for <laughs> copies made in Tehran and other kind of major centers that's amazing, across isn't it. it. It's really phenomenal. Um, so th- that's a kind of sidebar note that um, India, um, in terms of the printed Uh, text in the Islamic world is a kind of focal point. It's sort of a ground zero in the 19th century. And the kind of texts you refer to, Anupam, and the, the, I know a lot of these are largely manuscripts. Who was writing those? Is there is there an answer to the who question? Yes. Like, were, where do you find them? What's the origin? They were designated scribes. Scribes. And they were supposed to... Just... And there were people who were lettered mm-hmm. and people who had a certain... Um, Um, finesse in the way they put things down in writing and they were hired for that and it was not only just for um, so there was a fact, skill element it was world. it was interesting that most of these writings when you talked about the market for whom or the clientele it was either the sacred or the temporal sacred or the temporal so you had the kings and these things and then you had the sacred because the market for sacred is huge because every household would like Element. So it was. These are essentially the places where, um, where these things were written for, and these scribes were the people hired by these patrons who would, in fact, in many of the cases, this eventually even became a way of earning merit. 
of the self spiritual development of the individual itself when you're writing and uh, indicting a manuscript when you're writing and copying a manuscript is considered even today an act of uh, earning merit uh, in the jain granthagaras and everything even today it carries on to this day and do you see an interplay between painting and writing has there been an interplay has there been co movement co evolution or something of that sort or i mean all you have to do is make a pilgrimage to the various places in india and along these routes there were the pilgrim routes there were the color routes along these routes as you go you find a profusion of wall paintings in the places where people would rest but and these, all these... the illustrations of these these wall paintings illustrated stories and episodes related to the pilgrim site that you were eventually approaching and everything is annotated mm. there are there is writing everywhere to explain the characters who that person is who that person is it happened on walls it happened also on the miniature format naturally because those were the precursors to all other formats uh so you have that interplay of writing plus text even in our miniature paintings in india we find that And so these are largely uh, wall paintings with texts accompanying them. Yeah, little markings as to who this is, who that is, to you know, to help, to sort of facilitate the reading of the image by the uh, viewer, so to speak. Where are you on this interplay, Shopan? Um, of well, a number of the uh, image and the word, right? I'll come back to that image and the word, but before that, uh, let us go back to what Yael was saying about the experiment, short-lived experiment. in istanbul sure. something similar happened in india the where the portuguese uh, brought um, uh, machinery to print and um, some printing took place in goa right in the 16th century and then it disappeared and it only resurfaced in talangabari which, which was yeah, in the in the in the literature then was called trankabar and in calcutta in bengal in hugli and other places in the 18th century the so we have to think one of the market second of the technology as of the geography and third um, a certain preparedness of the of the written culture you see um, in the in case of uh, places where islam spread in its early days they had a writing culture a manuscript culture since the days of you know uh, mesopotamia when well, writers had, need readers yeah, yeah. They, they, there was a writer god in mesopotamia called writer nabu. god yeah called nabu <laughs> asun banipal uh, declared that he was the son of nabu the writer god because he could write <laughs> so uh, so what was lacking in goa in the, the portuguese that, days the fact that um, there was a suspicion about print about the uh, access that print would enable and also perhaps the motives of those who were printing because the first pr- uh, printed materials from the, there were catechisms and so on right and uh, printers also went to the nizam of hyderabad and he preferred to buy an air pump not a printing machine so uh, theorists who believe uh, that uh, print comes and an imagined community follows soon uh, i'm not it's saying not there is there is no merit to, there is this this happened in europe perhaps but in india it's very difficult uh, to you know square the facts 
with this so about, uh, about your, the image. Is your argument, Shokun, just staying on that question, is that it was largely an economic failure? It landed in a place where there was no market. Also, or? I don't believe in technological determinism. If you say that digital media has come, so this is going to happen. Now look at all. Uh, look, look around you. Print and digital media are having different kinds of effect in different kinds of places. Right. There are some absolute texts which you still can't touch. Whatever access you give to people in whatever form you give them. And there are wars being fought over that. So what I'm trying to say is simply this, that uh, the uh, question of preparedness and, and uh, is tied up with what you had asked me, that is uh, image and words. Um, because paintings and illustrations, they kind of exist forever. Yes, at yes. This, forever. So that, and, that's know. why I feel that the coming of lithography, the coming of the woodcut, the planography and xylographic uh, relief uh, sure. illustrations were as important in India. Because you see, people were buying uh, images of gods and goddesses mm -hmm. from these so-called studios in um, uh, in the cities uh, during the but imperial this is, period. This is the 19th century. Or the yes, that's right. So, uh, with print came access to images. If you look at uh, Renaissance Europe, how many people could get to see the Botticelli? That's right. That's a great point. I think how, many, how many people went into the palaces of and, and, the, and the great mansions of noble people? The moment they saw it, their uh, you know engraving or woodcut or Durer or uh, then then they got to see what uh, the public art was, was architecture. So the and print, the great statues. So the print technology was not a revolution just for the word, but also for the image. Absolutely, because both both could travel. Right. You've summed it up. Yes. That's interesting. That's very, very interesting. And what about the... Now, because you get fragments, Anupam, you get fragments of this and that, how do you how do you extract the context where it lived? When, and then this is the interpretation side of things, and maybe the same question holds for you, Yael. Um, do you get full images and full albums and full manuscripts today? Depends on how you define full. What's the fullest thing you've got? Have you got like a full album with 100 pages, well-illustrated nicely preserved so we do those do survive um and not to fault the institutions where this has been done but nowadays uh often for conservation uh reasons codices are taken apart um it can be very difficult to photographically document a codex when it's still stitched because every time you open especially the center of um, a stitched book, you're stressing the supports, right? You're causing damage. Uh, so there are all kinds of reasons why, quote unquote, full books are now dismembered, to use a kind of gross term. But there's hardware and there's software, right? So there is this this physical aspect mm. of the whole thing. And mm -hmm. there's also what is written, what they mean in the script itself. Now, mm -hmm. don't those undergo changes as well over the last several years or have the scripts largely remained the same? Do you know what I mean? Over time, you mean the yes. in a single object? Yes. So, no, I mean, if if it's physically preserved, mm -hmm. is it is it good enough for the software? I mean, how you how are you able to extract what's written? Is is it all straightforward? Let me answer it this way. Mm -hmm. um, so, even in cases where we have an intact book, it survives. 
and it's in whatever format today that it may be, it has nevertheless um, oftentimes been a living artifact for centuries. Uh, And this is something that often I find literature specialists, art historians, historians overlook in a way that conservators don't, right? Somehow we put blinders on and we ignore the fact that, for example, there are annotations written in the margin. Uh, Centuries after a book may have been copied or printed, a much later owner may have crossed out sentences, right? right. Sometimes they're stylistically updated. Right. Um, and, and I think the tide is turning, but scholars for a long time have been very resistant to this idea that artifacts, and in this case books and other kinds of written supports, are prone to, in fact, you know, to give them a little bit of agency, want to be edited. They want to be uh, changed. They evolve. Um, And of course, we want to go back, we, that is scholars in general, to some kind of ur-object, which as far as I'm concerned doesn't exist and is much less interesting than the long durée um, story that artifacts actually tell. So you have the the physical form of the, uh, the book or the manuscript which has its own stories to tell if one can look into and read into the material and the way it was written, uh, the way uh, it's been put together, and also the intangible traditions of the way to handle these manuscripts and books. It's interesting. It is not just the way we do it. We just There are systems that have been coded as to how you... It's more, you know, much like how an architect folds the drawings. That it's taught to students, things like that. Then at the same time, and you mean these principles and techniques are meant to preserve them for longer? What's yes, the primary yes. I think drive that has been the for... underlying. Everyone wants it to last longer. You know, whether it was the memory of that word, which you want to transmit to the, the lay people, for example, or whether it is the material itself. Now, one is about the preservation of the material, but in cultures like ours, where sometimes the tangible aspect of something is not so important, but it is that value which is within it which is more important. You often immersed all your books and manuscripts and other things also in rivers, basically to prevent disrespect to them just in case they were thrown away somewhere else. That was the the governing thought that uh, made us do um, things like this. As in you would do it periodically out of... Uh... After some time when they felt that life is ebbing out, it is time to renew it. And they would be replaced by a new go. copy. And they would be replaced by a new copy or something? Yeah, they're replaced by a new copy. Right. And it's interesting that in a culture like ours, where we give emphasis and we give merit to allowing the physical form to just disappear and not have an attachment to it, as conservators, we are doing completely the opposite. The opposite. <laughs> you know, we're just making sure that it lives longer and longer and longer, you know. Without, well, that's one aspect of it. Do you, the do you, other do you... one is the documentation of the form that you said. Right. The preservation of the content. And that preservation of the content then takes different forms and it's retrieval. But And what I would like to bring here, this stemmed from the conversation that the two of you were having. Today, if you see many of these old manuscripts and books, they are written in languages which are disappearing. There are no people who are able to read these manuscripts. Bombay itself in this town, Mumbai, it's full of libraries which have books written in Pahelvi and other things, 
there is they are just searching for people to be able to read these things right mm. so it is just it's not just the content that is being preserved it is important to have the language also that needs to live on at least in some minds and tongues and are you able to say originals and copies apart that's that's pretty fairly simple i think yes and in in your mind does the original have a certain higher kind of value than than the copies i don't think it is for us to judge that when Ours when, when did the original that. do you know what i mean what do you mean by a copy because in the huh. world of manuscripts yeah, almost okay. everything is a copy what do you mean by that because um, the whole meaning of a manuscript seems to be something very old and original mm-hmm. that somehow passed down over centuries and it kind of makes its way here mm-hmm. now obviously there have been different kinds of reproduction technologies um mm-hmm. um so mm-hmm. so you mean that there are many manuscripts which are copies of copies absolutely that right. that that is practically the nature of manuscript culture is the copying of texts onto other supports and so when you talk about again that's why i wanted to ask for clarification when you say original do you mean as in authentically historical or do you mean original as in an autographed copy that is um the copy written in the author's hand the copy or do you mean the... copy as in what we would call a fake the version written in the author's hand the first version of a text the original version of a text a version as seems like a copy by itself but that that's the idea hmm. yes yeah, shopanda in the shakespeare first folio the preface is written by shakespeare's colleagues mm-hmm. hemings and condell mm-hmm. and they claim that for the first time shakespeare's plays have been printed from original copies <laughs> in in that period the original and copy were not antonyms like you have it in you know photocopying machine ads say that you can't tell the original from the copy and the copy from the original original copy the word copy is very duplicitous mm-hmm. on the one hand it means something that is copied in our sense of the word that you take down something there there is the master copy in front of you uh the archetype the the others other sense of the word is copia that is there is a fecundity of uh, the material so that people can have access to it right so the word has been used in both ways in um, uh, in the english language so it's a tricky word to use as uh, yael has pointed out but this is where the word print comes in the moment you, the shakespeare folio says printed from original copies that is the ontic status of the printed book is different from original and copy right that becomes a kind of uh shall we say a support which can be infinitely reproduced and this is uh, connected with what i have uh, described as the stigma of the book anupam was talking about the indian tradition now it's only here that you have the word bisharjan right bisharjan or bisharjan means surgeon it has in in bengali it has um, 
been corrupted to srijan means right. to create right okay creation and visarjan is to dismantle the creation right without these two uh parallel movements no worship is uh, complete uh, in the tradition in the case of the uh, you know fetishized book you will find that books go into graves go into furnaces uh, uh, for incineration after uh, someone passes away so there is a kind of shall i call it a kind of not commodification in the market sense but also a kind of book fetishism uh, in the uh, description of american indians by thomas harriet harriet was trying to teach them the bible they took copies of the bible and they eat ate the copies <laughs> because they wanted to incorporate them in the sense of getting it Making inside their bodies the so the book does two things parallelly one it transfers the continuum of conversation and freezes it into something which borges calls the absolute text where the contingency of interpretation will not touch the text itself and you know that religious texts are often treated in this way and the at the oh, same yeah. at the same time books have been the paradox is so important and so uh, also very sad that is this is our democratic weapon to be able to read uh, in your own way or in read against the grain read for change something that was considered immutable print has also made that possible mm. and there is uh, there is this now in in both the worlds that you are familiar with the island anupam i think i think in the sense of the word copia that uh, shopon used did it induce a certain kind of anxiety now now if the earliest versions or whatever these things were whether we call it books or manuscripts or albums or whatever um there must have been a certain kind of rarity authority to the full thing it came from a certain place it had a certain seal and so on now this whole print business that it induces a certain kind of anxiety in those worlds because it could be infinitely reproduced it could go anywhere because in in that sense paper or paper books or paper documents are a very different beast compared to wooden tablets and yeah. whatever parchments and things yeah um uh, talking about you just going back a little bit you mentioned earlier uh, the time when they started grinding wood into pulp i think this was about the 1800s when they actually technically started grinding and that was the time when cheap paper came into town and with in reference to the wood blocks um i'd like to illustrate from close by from the uh, you see all these the wood block printed manuscripts of the trans himalayan region they're all on wood blocks now can you imagine one kangur or a tanjur has let's say 500 folios interesting folio also because people first wrote on leaves right the folio so today our written paper itself has is carrying the term the folio now that means you had about 1000 of these wood blocks about 2 feet long and about 1 and 1 inch thick and about 8 to 10 inch 8 uh, about 6 to 8 inches uh, in Broad. width 
And that means for one book, you had a room full of these wood blocks, which were exquisitely carved with these rudimentary, but most appropriate tools into perfect writing. And then these were then printed over and over again into the manuscript, which were then passed on to other monasteries and other people. So that was the original record? No, that's the thing. Now, what the original actually has been the wood block. Right. And it's been a faceless original because nobody even brings it into the conversation. It is not even in the equation. Right. It is the manuscript which is venerated. Right. Which has its wooden covers mm. and it's bound and it's tied in a but certain manner. But that's the real origin. But the wood block is there in the stores in the darkness somewhere up there and forgotten completely. And that is the original. And all these are the reason why they are the children of these wood blocks. Right. And therefore they cannot be termed just as copies because that is what... It's, that's the progeny and that was the purpose which that was the purpose of these wooden blocks so I think so no matter how many of these prints you make they always remain they're all from the first original wood block so I would say all of those thousands of copies are original prints from the wood block and then that was so for illustrations, as long as they were not signed as artist yes, proof. They were not signed. Um, yeah, that's yeah, a different. Judah's book plates, for example. They're all originals. Mm. I want to illustrate this question um, with two different answers. One having to do with the nature of the original in terms of the text as it was transmitted across the Islamic world. And by text, I mean anything from tafsir to poetry to histories, etc. Um, that it it wasn't so much that you had a copy written in the hand of the author. Um, the way that a text was actually authorized was through the against you know inscribed testimony that a much later listener, right, um, had received a kind of the oral transmission of the text from someone else who had heard it from someone else, who had heard it from someone else, who knew the original author. Right. And so actually there's a train, chain of transmission. And that uh, chain grants the authority of authenticity or legitimacy. It authorizes the text itself. And so you can, in effect, have an original copy that postdates the, the original, quote-unquote, original author's life by centuries. Right. Right? Because it says that so-and-so heard it from so-and-so heard it from so-and-so heard it from so-and-so, and so, -and -so, and so if it, on. If it is a high-fidelity match, if it matches the whole thing. Well, this the, the obsession, in fact, with exactly those kinds of processes, I think, is, is a relatively modern phenomenon, what, this what about, idea that you'd have to match text to text. What about the interpretation side of things, Yael? I mean, the, the, mm. the hermeneutics of it, right? I mean, mm. of course... Once the technology comes in, you have many copies of the same thing now, whether they're good or bad. I think we have discussed that. Mm -hmm. But the interpretation of that thing, because one is writing, the other is reading, and all mm -hmm. reading is interpreting. Now, was there and have there been efforts, institutional or, or otherwise, to control that aspect? You know, I think the well, the, the body's interpretation was formed itself its own body mm -hmm. of texts, which were transmitted similarly. Um, so, you know, the way that historians have put it, and I think this is an apt way to describe it, is that it's, a, it's essentially the transmission of text and knowledge is, a, is very much so a corporeal phenomenon, which brings us actually back to some of the points that were said 
earlier, even the idea of ingesting text, but that the authority of the text and the capacity to transmit a text, the authorization of a text, um, is you know between one body and another. Yeah, um, it's intersubjective. It's between two people. I mean, two bodies, two institutions. Mm. What? Yeah. But if I can, I just want to very quickly go back to an earlier question that you had about print in the Islamic world. Uh, and I, I touched upon, you know, these 18th and 19th century histories briefly. But in fact, we see print much, much earlier, um, as early possibly as the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. So that's so hmm. Indeed. And um, mainly in the Eastern Mediterranean, probably Egypt, Syria, the Levant, what are these printed texts that are actually on paper? They're talismans. 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 Magical things. We believe they were used for magical purposes. Um, they're often, um, they're, they often take the form of a, they're not codices, they're scrolls or small rolls. And um, we're not even 100% certain about how they were produced. Okay, what actually was the, um, the matrix, the printing matrix. Um, but what they bear are, uh, you know, select um, surahs or uh, sections uh, from the Quran, and also sometimes uh, talismanically charged images like Solomonic seals and such. And so this actually, I think, brings us back to some other points that were raised earlier about the copy. Okay, mm. um, so why would we find that talismans, you know, are some of the earliest instances of printing in the Islamic world? And one theory uh, is that. Um, it was it was actually the very nature of touching the paper to the matrix, oh. forming a, a kind of one-to-one -one impression, an index, right, that lent the talismanic charge to this object in a way that, um, you know, a scribal copy might not. So that's something to think about. So there the talisman is an object in a real sense. It serves a very different kind of purpose besides just reading it, no? besides just... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the whole question of whether writing necessarily has to be read yeah, to I mean, be so, effective so, and activated is, is, you know... So um, many of those talismans must have had impenetrable texts or whatever, symbols or... Not necessarily. I mean, they're actually written in, in fairly legible Arabic. Um, mm -hmm. And for someone who was a Hafez or someone who knew the... Quran relatively well, they could make out the inscriptions. And they're really from a, a body of a sort of stock favorite verses um, that are that we find commonly on talismanic objects. But I think the important takeaway point is that in this case, the copy is really the most important, N not unlike what Anupam was talking about in, in the case of these um, woodblock printed um, Himalayan uh, Buddhist uh, books, where it's the copy um, that becomes a sort of activated artifact. Why don't we go to this question of the written and spoken word? Because I think it, it charges many of the things that we're discussing. Was there a point where they separated? And like, was there such a thing as now? How was the, how were the earliest readings done? Was it always supposed to be read aloud? When did you know where I'm going with this? So what what exactly is that interplay? So let me speak from the area that I know best, which is let's say, the early Islamic world, mm -hmm. um, where... The, Which would be with centuries. So we're talking about in terms of in terms of manuscripts and manuscripts of the Quran, 
at the earliest late 7th century um, into the early 11th century where we start to see a greater number of paper manuscripts. Uh, so what are the forms that uh, Quranic manuscripts take? They're parchment. Um, and as Anupam already mentioned, um, but how was the reading done? Well, we're not 100% certain, but the point is that these were extremely expensive objects. Right. Right. So these, this is not, you know, the book that you threw in your backpack, um, you know, to carry around on a daily basis. We Definitely actually, not in there the was furniture century. that was made for parchment Quran manuscripts. They were that special uh, and that treasured. Uh, and... Uh, this is also not a book that you could have a whole community read. And so a working theory is that these were books that were read out loud and most likely were intended to be read out loud so that, so that rather than could... read silently. Right. But was that because they were meant to be heard by the others? Did, did that, did, was that supposed to have some kind of a sacred uh, purpose or, or indeed it was uh, be, just illiteracy people most people didn't know how to read it, it, it was those things or what was it it's complicated yeah, as with most uh, things but yeah it certainly has to do with the the oral nature of the divine text the Quranic text it also has to do with the nature of early um, script in Arabic that's used to copy the Quran during this period of time, um, which for the most part actually lacked symbols to indicate short vowels and actually lacked letter pointing to differentiate letters that look similar to each other. Um, and so that's why we believe that these books served, I wouldn't say a strictly ceremonial purpose, but were really uh, used um, in ritual contexts, sure. as prompts by individuals and audiences who already, if they didn't hadn't already memorized the text, sure. knew it extremely well. Now the picture changes, of course, when we move to other parts of the world, where um, Muslims are not using Arabic as their first language, and in fact don't necessarily know Arabic very well. <laughs> yeah, that's another question altogether. Yes, Anupam. One little thing on this is about the reading. And the written, the, the you know, the spoken word and the written word. Even when you have these manuscripts or wood or printed documents, even though it is written down, that's for the content. But the way that they have to be read, the read, that is not articulated in the written text. And that is a completely separate training that the reader has to go through because most of them were to be chanted in a certain manner or intonations were to be in a certain manner. So it is not that this was spoken and that was written. I think they have always been together where a rigorous training in the, uh, in the, pronounce, in the pronouncing of, those, of the written word was intrinsic to the training of handling these documents and so so which brings us to this question of when does the reader go silent right because from the it looks like a lot of these no, initial even if the reader even if the reader went silent in, in his mind it yeah, was the, the inner same. speech the cadence, has the same intonations yeah. and the pronunciation it was extremely so important because in terms of the value of that written word now we are you know and this we is call not it just intangible for, but it's much more than that in the value of the written would fall flat if it wasn't for the intonations. Now, now the charm this, would be completely gone. Now, is that is that mystical the charm, stuff? Not just or, magic, but the charm, both of it. No, I I wouldn't call it mystical. The best thing that comes to, I mean, the best way to 
conceptualize it is to think of music. Mm. If you want yes. to play Bach, right. uh, and you look at uh, looked at a early 18th century uh, music sheet, it tells you nothing except that it's it's allegro or it's uh, you know it's we played soft. Nothing else. Nothing right. else. It's a tradition that has come down. The great performers have taught. It's, it's in Hindustani classical music as well. So uh, by looking at the score, you will not really uh, get to the heart of the matter at all. So this is one. So the, the interpretative side of things, that yes. code has come down from generation yes. to generation yes. through yes. physical contact. Yes. Through. And, yes. and, one, and, about, and, and about reading and silent and etc. The specific question that you asked. Um, look, things have existed parallelly. Like we have machine readable texts and we have printed texts even now. So protocols of reading have always existed parallelly. If you go to Banar's or uh, even Odisha or some such place, there will be the Kathak reading out to people and uh, or in mosques, uh, the Shia uh, celebration of Muharram, for example. And the congregation or the listeners, let's call them readers, right. within quotes, they already know the content. Mm. Right. They know what is there in the Ramayana. They know what is there in the Purana. They, they know what is there in the Quran. They know what is there. But to experience the text in a community is a completely, the immersion in a community is a completely different experience. You don't have to be lettered. And even if you are lettered, you can go to listen to a text, it read in a certain way, now, so that the same feeling is is that cultural stimulated. Is that cultural? Is yeah, that there in some parts of the world absolutely. and not there in some absolutely. parts of the world? In some parts of the world, they will not respond. So, what's the substrate? I mean, what does this does this end up being in cultures that have had a more oral history kind of tradition, or what? Yes, yes, I I, I would like to think so. Yes, and in areas in civilizations which have had a long. Uh, history of uh, writing systems. For example, in China, xylographic uh, uh, books, xylographically printed books uh, have been there in China. I don't know the exact date, but uh, I think from the uh, third, fourth mm. uh, centuries of the common era. Uh, and talismanic use of books was, the, was there in China, just as they were in, in Rome when they used Virgil for, uh, you know, uh, 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 predicting the future, so these are so there's some kind of a privilege of sound. These of sound, are culturally the de meter, determined, the, yes. Right. But at the same time, the reading of books as a solo, uh, hmm. silent activity uh, need not necessarily, and I think Anupam is hundred percent right there. It need not necessarily rule out that inside your head. You are actually reading, uh, reading the text or listening to reading the text. Reading it aloud in your head. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So Saint do, Ambrose. Do you read aloud? Saint Ambrose uh, used to read the Bible with his lips shut. That we we know that. Do yeah. you read it? Do you read aloud in your mind? When I read poetry, yes. When I read when I read drama, yes, and especially when I read Bengali, yes. <laughs> do you read aloud in your head, Yael? Not only do I do that, but I actually read out loud when I'm writing. Right? That's <laughs> it's a quirk. But I think it's connected. It's about sounding. Because language and literature, what we write, 
we want to hear it, right? But but this this question um, of the silent reader, uh, you know, and whether it represents a kind of modern disembodiment or disengagement from the larger community, which I don't think it is, um, I think for me is most poignantly illustrated by uh, Walter Benjamin's very famous meditation on his library, because, of course, as a German Jewish refugee, uh, among his most prized possessions were books. Right. And for some, it might be hard to imagine, um, you know, the last thing on your mind would be carrying around you know, books, you need other things as, as, as you're essentially kind of, you know, running for your life. Um, but as I understand it for him, reading was silent, but it was through silent reading that uh, he connected with a, an idea of, of humanity, right? Um, it was in, you know, the experience and the process of reading these books that he felt most alive, and and in fact, the destruction of libraries, then personal, institutional, or otherwise, really represents a death of civilization. Which is um, so. What's the future, Arupam? Where where are we headed? What's the future of you? You've seen things going back many centuries now. I think we're requesting you to look forward many centuries. Where is some of this stuff headed? What will survive? And I think it there is there is this whole sense making meaning side to this whole thing, right? Obviously, one is the hardware of what survives, and the other is this, as you beautifully pointed out, there's this tradition of interpreting and reading that kind of needs to move alongside. Um, I think that brings me back to your question of, do I read aloud? Uh, <laughs> I actually don't, but I see it aloud, and I read. What does that mean? I mean, you have the visuals in front of you of right. what you're reading. So I usually don't read out aloud. And in terms of what the future holds about seeing that part of it, I think uh, I think as long as we have thoughts and uh, which we may sometimes articulate as painting, which is again a, a manuscript, you know, scrivere to write from your mano, mano as in hand. Right. I think painting itself is an act of the hand also. The hand is somehow a part of this always, no? Because everything yes. is done with hand. Yes, so even technically in terms of definition of the word manuscript, if you're speaking in English. So I think the, as long as the painting is there or the articulation of something into an image or whether it is in terms of writing, uh, I think um, as long as these things are always there, writing and books and things will always be there. And the more importantly than that, uh, the values and the impact uh, on the lives that these books and manuscripts touch, that will, even then when the books disappear, uh, those those impulses will keep getting transmitted from generation to generation. So I suppose what the purpose of the books, suppose books disappeared from the earth today, whatever lives they have impacted until now, they will just keep getting transmitted over and over again. Out. Oh through your children and grandchildren mm. and the people whose lives you touch. What's the future, never know. And it, it, this is also, in a way, a civilizational question, right? Because, I mean, you, you don't do books just for the sake of doing books. You do them because whatever, you have certain impulses, you have ideas, you have questions, and, and it's a way of engaging and inquiring the world. 
um so where is this headed not 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 your wishful future where do you see this going as a somewhat detached analytical person we have not discussed the digital book uh, really at any great length but let me point out two very important things that have happened one is we have talked about the uh, books that have been taken apart and now they are being put together what do you mean books taken apart bits of it is perhaps in the uh, some library in india and bits of it in uh, let's say in the british library sure. so now they are being digitally put together this is happening all over the world mm-hmm. so that this fragmentation you can find that now so you get an idea of what books were like that it's not just machine readable books machines are making book books possible once again right. in a different way in a different light this the second thing which is very positive is that for textual scholarship the very visuality of the book for example you have an an, an alternate uh, alternative or a variant reading of the same text let's say text in sanskrit in the footnotes now with hypertextual uh, links you can just click from one to another and you as a reader can make the book in a way which uh, even born digital texts uh, of course uh, they 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 imply the reader will uh, generate meaning of some sort sort uh, they will concretize the book mm. but uh, at the same time uh, books which belong to the print age or the pre-print age can now be read and edited as a, as a, as a textual scholar uh, i think this has been a this has been a remarkable thing that has happened uh, of of late and i think these are the positive but the dangerous will the, will things the books survive as the dangerous one? things i think does not come from technology mm-hmm. the dangerous thing comes from prohibition and politics right you know one thing just a quick little thing this thing about whether the book will survive mm. human beings are the only creatures who actually have clothes which have pockets to be able to carry things until we have the need to carry things with us in terms of even information you need to put a form of it in some you know so whether it is a pen drive today as you're saying but i think i think the book will it has already stood the test of time and i think the books mm. will remain mm. i think yes yeah i i think you get to pass a verdict on this i i don't have a verdict i i, I want to actually build on what anupam and, and shoban have uh, already um said Uh, one thing i i think there has always been anxiety about, about material advances right and the effect that they will have on communities institutions and culture and as an old professor of mine likes to say um things are never as good as they used to be and moreover they never were right right so we we that that's never going going to go away um but to go to this this whole question of the digital sphere um and as Shoban says it's really really exciting what is now possible i'm thinking for example of um a project that looks at the materials of the geniza from cairo right this essentially medieval trash heap 
uh, that was kept at a, at a synagogue in Fostat in Cairo, um, where any number of materials written in Hebrew characters, although the language is not always Hebrew, sometimes it's Arabic, um, it was stored. I mean, this is like a conservator's dream, right? right. This huge cache of, of documents on various kinds of supports. And um, they're divided among a number of institutions, Princeton, Cambridge, and others. And now um, those who are spearheading this project have put a lot of these materials digitally online and have crowdsourced it, right? So you can have someone sitting here in Bombay, someone sitting in Shanghai, et cetera, kind of helping to advance this project. Um, but I think as Chopin was uh, alluding to, the fact is the internet is not a democratic platform. Um, and we often like to think that once something is on the internet, everyone has access to it, but um, one's access to sure. materials, information online is limited um, across the globe. And so I, I think we need to bear that point in mind. And, and so sort of physical books remain, you know, highly kind of political objects, aside from being sort of valuable. Yeah, but the, the traditional form of the book on paper, in pure simple terms, it will last also because it is, in terms of longevity and the minimum of maintenance, this is the material which will last centuries. So, Anupa, just on that count, if I have a book and I keep it on the justification for books to last. So, this is you speaking as a conservator. Speaking as anybody who sees the material, yes, not just as a conservator. So, a, a standard paperback book. A good quality paperback book will be there for centuries and centuries. None of it technologies so can match it at the moment So, I leave this on this desk here, today. we step out of this room, come back after come two back, centuries. It's going to be lying here. It should be there. Do, so, it, it doesn't decay uh, there is a certain, Silverfish there's gets a certain life to things, but that's okay. If I give you a but floppy purely, disk from 89, purely, how are you going to read it? Exactly. So purely, purely as a material Pract object. Practical terms. It'll Is this the material I'd like to keep something in? And is paper itself evolving? What's the future of paper? Paper, we have degenerated paper with progress. Paper was extremely fantastic quality, high cellulose content material from the plants. The gum in the plant themselves itself was the binder, and the alkalinity in the waters made paper. It was such a simple material. Right. Today we are putting so many additives in it, and there's not only plant obsolescence, but the fact is that the materials you're adding into it is destroying it. Just like you're feeding your children with right. pesticide-laden fruits, you're actually degenerating the structure inherently. So if you make traditional paper like they do like they do today in so many parts of the world, and it's not such a rocket thing about making handmade paper. If you just put some plant materials together, mash it up, and especially the ones which have nice cellulose, like you mentioned right at the beginning, mulberry and, and cotton and other things like you have. And you just put it together, a nice alkaline water, you will have the best quality paper in the world, right here. Make it at home. Oh, that trees need to survive, but they trees, will. Trees, no, you don't need trees at all you for that. Not bug. at all. You don't need a single tree for paper. That's the irony of the whole thing. You just need, wood you need these little shrubs and bushes and which are particularly growing, which also preserve, do soil conservation at the same time. It's interesting. They would do water retention. That's so it's nice. It's a phenomenally network thing that you could do just with... This the, is a perfect world where we have shrubs, we're retaining yes. water, we can yes, make yes. paper and out And then of you it. have paper. It's all about... And read Homer. So and that is what the books will be written about also. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. This is such a pleasure. Mm.